Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and today I'm so happy to be hanging with my friend Dr. Mark Muska. As you know, when he shows up, we uh, usually do ask the professor. Although last time he was there, we didn't. Uh, we were part of my Old Testament series, but that was then. This is now. We're back to ask the professor. So let me know what your questions are. Eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Again, text them to eight seven seven nine three three two four. Eight four. Hello, Mark. Hey there. Nice to see you and nice to have you here yeah. for the full hour. As always, I look forward to our time together. And questions are already flying in the door. Can I tell you what the first one is? You may. All right. I just finished reading Job. Why is Job's fourth friend, Elihu, not chastised by God as the other three are in Job 42, verses 7 to 9? Yeah. Uh, that uh, is most likely because Elihu uh, and uh, he was uh, on target with what he was uh, saying. He doesn't oh. come on the scene until uh, Job 32. And uh, the author tells us that uh, he's a younger man. These three older men have been yammering away since chapter 3. And... Uh, at the end of chapter 31, the writer says, the words of Job are ended. And then chapter 32, 1, then these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. And now here comes Elihu. It says, but the anger of Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzzite of the family of Ram, burned against Job. His anger burned because he justified himself before God. And his anger burned against his three friends because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. So he, out of respect for these elders, uh, he sat there uh, quietly. Uh, there presumably could have been quite a crowd there. When you get uh, people like this that are uh, talking together, it wouldn't be unusual to have a crowd there. But we know at least Elihu was there. But yeah. uh, he is able to recognize that there are, uh, there are more things going on here than these four men are willing to acknowledge. Um, uh, Job, you, know, you got to feel sorry for the guy. He he doesn't know what he did to cause all this to happen to him and his three friends. They don't know either, but he must have done something bad. Uh, the all four of them uh, appear to have uh, they uh, to have bought into an idea. The fancy name for it theologically is ca- it's called retribution theology. And you know what the word retribution means? That means payback. And mm-hmm. essentially, retribution theology teaches that uh, when you do something bad, God's going to get you for it. You know, if some student drops their books in the snowbank on the way over to class, you know, they're going to think, oh, man, you know, that's God getting me because I didn't have my time reading the Bible this morning. <laughs> and no, God tipped my books over. It's a this, this for that kind of a retribution. 
And uh, this is really quite uh, pervasive in the Scriptures. You get it in the Old Testament. You're going to get it in the New Testament, too. In fact, it appears as though Jesus' disciples uh, bought into this when they came across the man who had been born blind in John chapter 9. They asked Jesus, well, who sinned, this man or was it his parents that he was born blind? Since he was born blind, he didn't do anything, so maybe it was his parents. But you get the same retribution. Somebody must have done something bad. And God's getting him for it by having him be born blind. And uh, uh, Elihu recognizes there's other reasons why people suffer. Sometimes people do suffer because they sin. You know, you go out and put on a bender and get drunk and drive your car and kill people with that. Yeah, uh, it's because you're sin. You, you did something wrong and uh, people died because of it. Uh, There's consequences for doing the wrong thing. But there's other things going on as well. We know from the book of Job, we get a peek behind the scenes in the first two chapters where this whole thing with Job is orchestrated by God in God's conversation with Satan. Because God's, uh, he's showing off Job here saying he's a righteous man. And Satan says, well, you know, if you strike him and cause pain and suffering in his life, he'll curse you to your face. And so God turns Satan loose on him, and he says, okay, uh, take away his family and his possessions in chapter 1, and then take away his health in chapter 2. You can't kill him, but you can come close. And so uh, Job and his three buddies and Elihu, they didn't know this was all going on. And so they were just kind of at a dead end there trying to say that this was uh, this was something Job must have done, uh, that he deserved this. And Job, he crosses the line, too, because he does justify himself. And the only other option, then, is, is that God isn't doing the right thing if Job didn't do anything wrong. But Elihu points out that there's other reasons for suffering. In fact, I like to point out uh, sometimes suffering and pain is a good thing. If you put your hand on a stove that's hot, uh, I'm glad that there's pain in my hand that'll get me to take my hand off of that stove presto, and I just don't let it sit there and barbecue and get a nasty third-degree burn. And so Mm. we need to recognize there is more to this whole thing. But it's one of the great questions of all times. Uh, A Jewish rabbi uh, wrote about this years ago. He's not a Christian guy. He's a Jewish fellow. But he wrote one of the most popular books ever published, uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And uh, he wrestled with the same dilemma as Job's uh, four friends. So uh, Mm -hmm. this is something we, we really have to be careful about, thinking we've got it all figured out. We want to figure it out as humans. Why am I suffering? We want to be able to, we think it might give us some some comfort to know, well, this is happening because of this. But you know, sometimes you just don't know. And all you do is chase your tail and uh, go around in circles and just get more and more angry as you do that, because sometimes there is no answer that's apparent for why something bad is going uh, going on. So... Not only did I just learn a lot about Elihu, but I learned how to say his name correctly. Yeah, well, you can say it a couple different ways. So that. Yeah? Yep. Mm-hmm. All right, here's another question, Mark. So excited to hear your conversation with Dr. Muska. Can you ask him this? I'll be leading a, a study of the New Testament with my neighbors starting in a few weeks. I'm excited, but I feel a little nervous. How should I handle questions about topics regarding the roles of women that are very different than our culture? Yeah, that's a good question, and uh, you can first of all pray that uh, these issues either don't come up or they come up in the right spirit. (laughs) 
because mm-hmm. they can be very contentious, and there's wonderful Christian people uh, that love God and love Jesus. They've been saved, and they believe the Scriptures, but they don't agree on some of these issues, like the role of women, uh, both the role of men and women in the home and leadership, headship in the home, and then the role of men and women in the church and uh, church leadership should both men and women be leading as pastors and elders and so forth. And so I would, uh, uh, if, this, if, if this person thinks this particular issue is going to uh, raise itself, uh, then he, he can do some reading. And there's really some excellent uh, sources out there uh, that we could provide for him on this particular role about the role of men and women. Uh, but uh, if it's just a concern about questions in general, you know what? It's good for the old humility. When somebody asks you a question about something like this and you're not ready for it, you just say, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you might as well admit it instead of trying to babble for a while and everybody knows you don't know, but you just haven't admitted. And so uh, well, that's uh, what I do on the radio, Mark. Hey, you know, I mean, it, <laughs> I, I take your humility pill for the day and just say <laughs> there's, there's a lot of things that I don't have uh, a hold of from the scriptures, but we can look at it and we can study it together and it can turn into a teaching opportunity. Yeah. Another question, uh, how did King Cyrus know that the Jewish God was the Lord of heaven, as stated in Ezra 1-2? Yeah. Will he most likely be in heaven? That is a really good question. And oh, you I know. Can, well, you can get into the same kind of thing with Nebuchadnezzar, because he was the uh, uh, king of Babylon, and when Daniel went into exile, when the Jews and Daniel went into exile. And Nebuchadnezzar sounds like a pretty good elder in the church, the way he talks about God and submitting himself to God. So we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar there as well. And uh, I think I just talked about this, didn't I, about two minutes ago, Rosie, that uh, sometimes you just have to answer, I don't know. You did just mm-hmm. say that. We did. Yeah, I heard him say yeah. it too. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't yeah. think I'm having memory loss here. Nope, I think I, I, I did that because I don't know if anybody can nail that down. There's arguments uh, for and against. When you have somebody like this King Cyrus, and he controlled the whole region, you know, he was like what the Soviet Union was in Europe back 50 years ago. Uh, they controlled the whole region and they were brutal. Uh, the the uh, the Persians and Nebuchadnezzar, same thing with Babylon, uh, these very powerful men. But to have them say what they say, I mean, we can look up a couple of these beauties. They're, they're really good of uh, what is said here. I'm, I'm going to, first of all, go to the Cyrus passage. And uh, this is uh, in Ezra 1. Uh, this starts the move back to... Jerusalem of the exiles that were exiled in Babylon, uh, they are given permission by Cyrus to go back and rebuild the temple. And so uh, here's Ezra 1. Uh, It says here, verse 1, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, and in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying... And here we go. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, 
which is in Judah. And so then he says, okay, get moving and do that. So I like it, though. It's It brings in prophecy here. Jeremiah had said that this exile was going to last 70 years, and it did. And I think there probably was prophetic activity going on with Cyrus here and sticking this passage under his nose. We know Daniel is still alive because I believe it's in Daniel 9 when he says in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Daniel was active. Let me just check that uh, to be double sure here about this. Um, no, that's that's not Cyrus there. But anyway, some prophetic activity. And then it says, God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. You know what we call that? We call that conviction and illumination, <laughs> where God mm-hmm. gets to people in their minds and in their hearts. And uh, he, he did this with Cyrus. And so uh, this, uh, you know, he doesn't have a chance. Now, whether he was... Uh, uh, what we would say in the New Testament, saved by this, uh, that we can't uh, we can't really uh, define it because uh, you have to remember too, Bill. One of the things about these kings is they were polytheists; they believed in many gods, and so they weren't going to go out of their way to insult or go against any god, whether it was Yahweh God of Israel or other gods in this region. And so they usually had enough humility to respect the gods that they weren't going to tick them off unnecessarily. And so Mm -hmm. I think Cyrus would be open to this kind of thing from Yahweh, from other gods, if they so-called spoke to him as well, that they would would, uh, uh, do this. Uh, They'd uh, respond to this uh, vision. So... Uh, uh, the the Nebuchadnezzar passage is even better. This just sounds right out of Sunday school. Uh, Daniel chapter 4. I love it the way it starts. Nebuchadnezzar's watching Daniel write this thing, and then it's like he grabs the pen out of his hand, and he says, wait a minute, I'm writing this one. And so (laughs) he starts out in verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the the king to all the people, nations, and men of every language that live on all the earth, may your peace abound. It seemed to be good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. And then at the end of the story in chapter 4, we get verse 2 of it. Verse 34 But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand. And you can kind of see in parentheses there, me either. Or say to him, what have you done? So, okay, yeah. Really good. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, so Mark, when we come back, I have a whopper of a question for you. Oh, boy. It is asked the professor, Dr. Mark Moska is my guest. You can send questions over to 877-933-2484. Coming up next, interesting question. Be right back. Great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning, new mercies I see.
Dr. Mark Mosca is my guest. We're having asked the professor for the full hour, so let me know what your questions are. But wouldn't it be great if your child came to the University of Northwestern and then went to their theology class and Mark was their professor? How awesome would that be? Whoa. I think it'd be awesome. Hmm. Well, why don't yeah. you come visit sometime? I'd like to. Yeah. I'm going to bring that foghorn sit in the back. You can do that. Remember, I'm sorry I, can, I came. I can embarrass you more than you can embarrass me. <laughs> That's true. All right, here's a question. We'll see how good you are, Mark. I want you to answer this question in three words. Um, what was the place of romance in the first century, or is it a medieval invention? Yeah, the three-word answer is, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I haven't studied that. Uh, that I okay. think it's connected to the idea of arranged marriages and the whole idea that families got involved with this. So a lot of times people really didn't get an opportunity to make their own decisions. You know, you have to wonder, uh, there certainly isn't any evidence of dating in the New Testament. You know, nothing like what we have become so uh, mm-hmm. accustomed to today. But uh, there are instances in the Scripture, I can't think of any specific one right now, I have to think about it for a while, where people did, in fact, they were attracted to each other and they fell in love and got married. And it's not so, it wasn't like a blanket thing for everybody. Mm-hmm that it had to be arranged by the fathers or something like that to, uh, uh, to do it. So that, yeah. uh, but as far as, you know, the uh, origin of the dating whole thing and everything, I, I just not sure about that one. All right. Here's an interesting question in John three seventeen, God's purpose is not to condemn, which appears opposite to John three eighteen and John three thirty six. And this listener doesn't understand how these all fit together. Yeah, well, let's look at them. John 3, really yeah. famous. This is where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Really, really good stuff in here. Maybe the most famous verse in the Bible is uh, the verse 16, right before that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And now verse 17, here's the one side of the teeter-totter. It says, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So uh, this was not intended to bring judgment upon the world. But then verse 18, you get the other side of the teeter-totter. It says, he who believes in him, in Jesus, is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then uh, verse 19, I like to go further here. It says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. And then we go to verse 36. He who believes in the son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So uh, this, I, I, I love it because it's perfectly balancing God's mercy and God's righteousness and his judgment that uh, for those who come to the sun for life, come to the light, uh, they are saved. That's why he was sent, was to save people, that people would be saved through him. But for those who disobey and reject the sun, uh, the wrath of God will come upon them. And uh, Jesus is part of that as well. Uh, to uh, administer judgment. Uh, uh, there's a, a awfully high... Uh, stakes or high uh, consequences here for that decision that we make to either depend on Jesus to forgive our sins through his death on the cross or to go our own way. Hmm. Thank you for that, Mark. Uh, This is a difficult 
question. First John 5 says that if you're praying anything, if you pray anything according to my will, I will hear you and give you what you ask. I prayed for the salvation of a family member for decades and also talked to them about it, and they eventually died without Jesus. So mm-hmm. did I interpret the scripture wrong about God's will, or is there an exception to the rule? Yeah, that this is this is something that really gets us going because there's these blanket statements. Jesus himself uh, says uh, very similar in John 14, you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And so he wants to give us confidence to ask from God, from him, and he will be responsive. Uh, it's one of the things I like to start prayers with, Bill, honestly, to say, uh, I, I'm so thankful, Lord, to that you hear me anytime, anywhere, no matter what, and you hear and you respond. And so that is the general thing that happens. But the part that we have to factor in here as well is is that God has his plans and purposes in the world. And when we pray, uh, we try to come in alignment with those plans and purposes. And sometimes what we wish for isn't always what God has going on. And so uh, I like using Jesus in the garden as our uh, as our model for this. He said, you know, Father, take this cup away from me, uh, yet not my will, but your be, yours be done. And he was willing to go to the cross and accept that. So that's one part of this. The other part of it is, too, we have to be careful about drawing conclusions about where people are, are at when they die. I am an eternal uh, optimist, Bill. I just thank God, you know, everybody is going to be in heaven someday, even the worst, that maybe in the last moments of their life and consciousness that, that God is there and and uh, making himself known to them, and they put their faith in Jesus and receive him in those last few breaths, maybe not even conscious uh, maybe semi-conscious, but I'm an eternal optimist about that. I, I just hope that we see so many more people than we thought that are going to be with us with Jesus forever. I, I don't like doing the flip side of making conclusions about somebody who's been burning in hell for such and such amount of time. I, I think that does really bad things to us thinking that way. I've been inspired by that perspective of yours, Mark, because I, I learned that years ago talking to you, and I've, I've adopted it myself, because when you think of the thief on the cross that says, would you remember me? That's, that's Jesus knew his heart. So you can, be, you can be on your deathbed and maybe not completely coherent, and, and in ways you can be communicating with, with God. And I hope this person uh, does this kind of thing, even with someone who's unconscious, laying in the hospital to right. pray that God can somehow reach them in this state of consciousness or unconsciousness they're in, and uh, they can be saved, even though they've said no to Jesus all through their life. Mm -hmm. We are going to uh, continue to take your questions. Let me know what they are. 877-933-2484. Ask the professor. We're also looking forward to having you sign up to read the Bible together. We're looking at the book of Acts, and you can start reading that February 1st to get a free online study guide. And an online uh, uh, bookmark and podcast. It's all available at MyFaithRadio.com. But for now, send your questions over, 877-933-2484, and then we will ask your questions to Dr. Mark Mosco when we come back. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Let's get it started. Jump 
Welcome back to the show. If you are just joining us, it is the Ask the Professor Hour with Dr. Mark Muska. So let me know what question you might have. 877-933-2484. Mark, I know that your heart is that all would, just like Jesus, that all would come to faith in Christ. And I know you had mentioned that. And I think there was a listener that was suggesting if that was universalism, which I know your heart and your spirit, and I know that's not who you are, but yeah. If you would expound on that briefly. Well, I think it is universalism. It's a universal wish. Uh, who would want anyone to be condemned and to be judged? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's that, that does something bad to our hearts. And so there's plenty of a realist in me to realize that people aren't just going to be dragged into the kingdom against their will, that there may be people who die still defiant and rebellion, uh, rebellious against God, and uh, their future is uh, a horror. Mm-hmm. All right, Mark, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7, that is the verse that we're talking about right now. How can we reconcile God allowing a faulty system, the Old Covenant, with his good, perfect, and faultless nature? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, that uh, we, uh, uh, just to set the context in Hebrews 8, the author is comparing the Old Covenant, he calls it, the one that was instituted with Moses in. Uh, uh, Exodus 24, uh, between Israel and God, God, the, the national covenant, he made Israel his people, they were his God, or he was their God, I'm sorry, and uh, that carries throughout the entire Old Testament. But then uh, in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, he prophesied about a day when a new covenant would come with the Jews, with Israel and with uh, Judah. And it wouldn't be like the old covenant. It would be a better covenant. And so the writer of Hebrews picks up on this because he's talking about how Jesus is a superior high priest of this new covenant than Moses ever was in the old covenant. And uh, I'm going to pick it up here in uh, verse 6. I think it will uh, suffice here. In Hebrews 8, 6, it says, But now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Sounds like an ad on TV, right? Better covenant because of better promises. Here we go. And then verse 7 is the one that this caller is talking about. For if that first covenant, the old covenant, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for the second for finding fault with them, he says, and then the writer of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah 31, word for word, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, I'll effect a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the one I made with their fathers, when, but this new one. And he said, uh, and the two things he promises here is that people will know God and that this will go through the entire population of those who believe in him. And then he says in verse 12 of Hebrews 8, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. There will be forgiveness of sins and changed hearts that they all will know me. And so then the writer says, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So you could make a case to say, well, this is a deficient covenant because another one was necessary, but it all fits in the sequence and the program of God's plan for humanity. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, people, if you want to use New Testament language for it, people could be saved through this old covenant by by faith, by believing that the, when they offered those animal sacrifices, that their sin was atoned for, it was forgiven. Now, we know from Hebrews again that he says in Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10, the one sacrifice for sin for all time was Jesus. The blood of bulls and goats never forgave sin. But they didn't know that in the Old Testament. They believed what they were given. And so uh, God applied the death of Christ to their sin, and they walked out from offering those sacrifices cleansed because of Jesus that was coming hundreds of years later. So it gets a little complicated in there, but I don't see that as a deficient so that God's doing junk, that kind of attitude. He has a sequence and steps in this plan that he has for humanity, and this is one of the steps in it. Wow. Amazing. Thank you for that, Mark. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. If you have a question, it's Ask the Professor time. Let me know what it is, 877-933-2484. You can also email me if you want. That's bill at myfaithradio.com. All right, here's another question. In Numbers chapter 21, verses 16 to 9, God sent fiery serpents, maybe like a snake, among the people, and it bit them and they died. Yep. The people apparently repented. God then told Moses to put a bronze serpent up on a pole. Anyone looking at it were saved. Why a snake? Yeah, because it was snakes that he used for this. Uh, maybe there was a nice snake population there in the <laughs> wilderness that he could tap into and go tell them to slither over there and accomplish my purposes for me. Uh, I don't know, I'm being kind of facetious here, but uh, my response to that is, why not a snake? You know, uh, he's going to use something here to execute judgment on rebellious people. And so uh, this is what he uh, chose to use here on uh, on this uh, on this occasion. So, uh, yeah, it's the snakes. But this has powerful uh, 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 symbolism to it. Uh, that Jesus is going to be uh, uh, a part of as well here. So uh, let's see here. I'm looking over in uh, uh, the Gospel of John here, and uh, Jesus uh, picks up on this whole idea about the uh, uh, the the uh, serpents in the wilderness. And so uh, let's see here. I'm trying to find the part here, and I'm not succeeding. I thought it was in chapter 2, but it might be in chapter 3. But anyway, he says that just as uh, the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, and people will be saved through that. So he uses this as a, an illustration of the, of the uh, work that he will do, and the setting for it is this, uh, uh, this incident in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Just so you know, Mark, I'm completely comfortable with you thinking out loud and paging through your Bible. Yeah, well, I Just have so to. You, know. you give me about three seconds warning here. So. I know, I know, mm-hmm. I know. So we understand God created everything. So the question came in, who created hell? Uh, God did. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I'm paging through to get the passage, but okay. uh, Jesus, in one of his statements in what is sometimes called the Mount of Olives Discourse at the end of Matthew's Gospel, uh, this starts in Matthew 24, and it goes through chapter 25, and they're big chapters, 51 verses in 24 and 46 in 25. But uh, Jesus 
talks about the judgment in uh, starting in Matthew 25, 31. And I'll just read a little bit of it here. It says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And many listeners will be aware of this. He talks, first of all, to the uh, uh, the sheep, and he says uh, that I was naked, you clothed me. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was hungry. And he says, uh, and then the sheep, the righteous, will say, when did we see you like that? And uh, Jesus' response in verse 40 is, the king will answer and say to them, uh, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did this to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did this for me. But then it gets interesting because he turns to the goats and he says, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And that's definitive in verse 41, mm-hmm. that this was created by God as the place for the devil and his angels. And unfortunately, it appears as though the prospects are very likely that plenty of humans will enter into that place too. The book of Revelation calls it the lake of fire and brimstone. So it's created by God. Mm-hmm. All right, James chapter 1, starting in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is a double-minded and unstable in all they do. All right, can you unpack that one a little bit? Uh, sure. Anything specifically you want to talk about well, let's, there? There's let's about start six with, things. So I know. Let's start with the wisdom uh, component. We all want wisdom. We all want to know God's will. Mm-hmm. So we should ask God, who gives generously to all, what does without finding fault mean? Yeah, well, without doubting, without uh, any doubting that that's, uh, you should ask and believe that God is going to give you this uh, wisdom. Uh, James comes back to it in chapter 3 when he talks about wisdom. He says that, uh, he says, uh, I'm going to start in verse 13 of James 3. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. When there's jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder in every evil thing. And now, verse 17, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits unwavering, mm-hmm. without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So he's saying, uh, trust the Lord that he's going to deliver this wisdom to you and uh, uh, you know, answer your doubts, uh, deal with those doubts, settle it so you have a settled faith on this, that God will answer you when you ask him for his wisdom. But if you're new in your faith and you read this and you think that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, you must believe and not doubt. And if you're wrestling with doubts of any kind, would that not put an incredible fear in you? Sure. And uh, doubt is a a, a very important uh, topic to deal with, Bill. We've talked about this a bunch of times before. Yeah, we have. Where a doubt, it's it's a state of mind where we're really between believing something and not believing it. Uh, sometimes people condemn people and say, well, doubt is like unbelief, and it really isn't. 
that unbelief, you've made a decision, you don't believe something. Uh, belief is, yeah, you've made a decision, you do believe something, and doubt is in the middle. I love what Oz Guinness, the apologist, he wrote a book back in the 1970s, had a big influence on me that's called In Two Minds, The Dilemma of Doubt and How to Resolve It. And in there, he talks about the person who doubts is in two minds. Part of them is believing and part of them isn't believing. And so uh, we have a saying for that where we say, yeah, I'm doubting. I haven't made up my mind yet. I've got two minds on this. And so uh, that uh, doubt, when we doubt God, it's not a good thing. And Oz Guinness recommends that we deal with our doubts, do our research, pray, talk with people, and make a decision whether you're going to believe or not. But then also we don't condemn people for doubt. That doubt oftentimes is a pathway to a stronger faith when we question things and uh, uh, research them out. And our faith is stronger when we find answers to our questions. Uh, For too long, the church has demonized doubt. That if somebody has doubts, oh, that's bad. You got to repent. You got to, you know, confess and that. And that's too oversimplified. It's uh, sometimes doubt is very helpful. In fact, sometimes doubt is a virtue. When you're exposed to baloney, I hope you doubt it. When someone mm-hmm. tells you that Buddha saves, I hope you doubt that. You may not know for sure. You may have to research it, but you're going, ah, yeah, I don't know about that. And you doubt it. It protects you against baloney. Hopefully you have a baloney meter there that's uh, starting to to uh, peak on you and you can uh, you can be saved from believing things that are false by doubting them. Mhm. Great answer. Thanks for that, Mark. Uh Philippians 4:9. Paul says, "Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you." Mm-hmm. Is there any braggadocio going on there? Nope. It, whatever you've seen in me, boy, that sounds like it's, the, it could be a little bit of a, a little bit of a brag, but maybe not, huh? Yeah, I'm not sure about the whatever part. The translation I'm looking at it says the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So I'd have to look at the original language. I don't have that right in front of me here to be able to check that. Uh, but Paul mm-hmm. isn't bashful about using himself as an example for these Christians. And so mm-hmm. he's going to say, uh, this is something you need to see and hear from me and imitate it. In fact, he says it out loud in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He starts the chapter out by saying, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. As I follow Christ, you follow me. And let's keep going in that direction. Mm-hmm. All right, time for more questions. Let me know what they are. You can text them over to 877 2484. It is Ask the Professor, and the professor is my friend, Dr. Mark Muska. Again, 877-933-2484. Your questions are next. Ask the professor. Our professor is Dr. Mark Muska. So glad that he's with me today. And some wonderful questions have come in. Thank you so much for your great questions. It's made for a very lively hour. 
All right, Mark, in Matthew ten fourteen, it says, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. seems like when we do evangelism and we want to share our hope with others, we want to stay persistent and be consistent and show up regardless of how much they reject us or oppose our message. What does this verse say relative to that? Yeah, this is a, this is a really good question because it gets into some uh, interpretive principles for reading the Bible. Because if you look at the context of this in Matthew chapter 10, uh, Jesus is saying this to the 12 apostles before he sends them out to spread the word about him. Okay? And it's a specific incident in history uh, we call this the it's a narrative passage it's telling the story of what Jesus and the apostles did it's not a teaching passage like one of Paul's letters would have been it's a narrative it's telling a story of what happened and because of that we got to be careful there's an important interpretive principle to remember that just because something happened in a narrative in the Old Testament or New Testament does not necessarily mean that that has been baptized as once for all kingdom come heaven and earth eternal Every, evermore, uh, that everybody should be doing that. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a transcendent teaching that we have to follow, because there's some problems here. If you look a little bit earlier, when Jesus gets ready to send them out, look what he says in chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. He says that these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, if you're going to make that into some transcendent teaching for all time, uh, the Gentiles and Samaritans are out of luck, pal. You know, you only talk to Jews. And that's absurd that there's plenty else in the Scriptures to uh, to modify that so that we don't uh, we don't over-apply a narrative passage like that. So uh, we got to be careful about that kind of thing. In this light, though, Jesus is saying they are going out and proclaiming a word, and they're going to a lot of places, and they're proclaiming the word. And he says, don't waste your time on those who aren't ready to hear the message, who don't receive you, because you got plenty of other towns to go to with the message on this particular journey you're on. It really reminds me, when you talked about this, it reminds me what I read about Bill Bright years ago, uh, the founder and president of Crew in the uh, 20th century, where he would do beach evangelism in Southern California. And this guy would go out on the beaches and ask people there on the beach if he could talk to them uh, about the gospel and share, in his case, he shared the four spiritual laws with them. And Bill Brett was very explicit. He said, if there was somebody that wasn't ready, he said, well, thank you very much. I hope you have a great day. And he'd move on. And it wouldn't be unusual at all that he would talk to 10, 12, 15 people in a matter of 10 minutes until he found someone who was interested. Mm -hmm. And then he Mm -hmm. spent time with them and really shared the gospel with them. But he wasn't going to sit there and try to persuade people and twist their arms in that. He had plenty of people on the beach there to talk to. And so he just went very quickly through these places and... uh, and then found the people that God had prepared. And so yeah. um, maybe uh, there's a spirit of that in here as well. It's not good for them when <laughs> Jesus says in the next verse there, in verse 15, he says it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, in the day of judgment for that, and then that city that rejects you. So this is serious, but it seems to be it's a, it's a strategic move at this point in Jesus' ministry and not necessarily some uh, teaching for all time in all places. 
Mm -hmm. Bill Bright doing God's work on the beach and getting a great tan. And he was something else. I wish I could have known him. Yeah. Here's a question that came in a couple days ago. I've been hanging out of this one because I want to get more than one perspective on it. I brought it up yesterday. I want to bring it up again today. Cindy was talking about um, relative to the, like the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, that I haven't heard any speak of the old-fashioned value of self-control. I mean, not only with this issue, but with many other things in our our culture. And I would love for you to address that, Mark, if you would. Of the virtue of self-control? Well, yeah, I mean, I think of First Peter one sixteen. It says, "For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy." Right. I, I read that and I go, "How do we process that?" You know, do you go home at the end of the day and say, well, "How'd you do today? How was how was your day?" Ah, good. I was pretty holy. Hmm. Yeah. I th- I'd, I'd say viva to that. That sounds good to me. If someone is able to live a life that pleases the Lord, uh, do that again tomorrow too. You know, that's pretty good. But uh, when it comes to these kind of moral issues that our society faces, seems like this baby we might be talking about a lot in 2022. It looks like the Supreme Court is going to wade into this political issue mm-hmm. in the United States. So we better start thinking about it and preparing ourselves. It was wonderful to see uh, Pro-Life uh, Sunday here just last week and people yeah. uh, uh, making their their positions known. But uh, uh, this thing, you know, you're talking about moral issues when you talk about self-control. Right. And uh, this is something we need to uh, promote in the church in particular for those who love Jesus, because if we love Jesus and if we depend on him to forgive our sins through his death on the cross, one of the wonderful benefits of that is that the Holy Spirit himself, the third person in the Trinity, comes to live inside our bodies. First Corinthians 619, Paul makes it clear our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit because he lives in us. And living in us, he desires to fill us or to control us and to give us the power to please God with our lives. And Paul describes the fruit of that in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, where he says, the fruit of the Spirit, what the Spirit produces in us as we submit to his power is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and, Bill, Self-control. That's right. That's the ninth one. And so this is what allows us to control ourselves morally. It is the Holy Spirit giving us the power and controlling us to the point where we're able to resist what we naturally would do. Because Paul talks about the deeds of the flesh right before that, and this is one of them, immorality, impurity, sensuality. So uh, this uh, is—but when we talk to non-Christians, Bill, we can't emphasize this enough. Their first need is to hear about Jesus and the forgiveness of sin and peace with God. And once that takes place, then it's going to turn their whole life upside down. Their thinking is going to change. The Holy Spirit's going to start having his way inside their mind and heart. And so their position— on things like abortion or euthanasia or all these moral issues we get into our society, they'll fall in line. But let's take care of first things first. Mm -hmm. Someone deeply needs to trust and depend on Jesus to forgive their sins. Jesus himself, we talked about John chapter 3 today. He says to Nicodemus, that is being a whole new life beginning within you. You are regenerated. It's like you're created again. It's like being born again when you put your faith in the gospel. And nothing Mm -hmm. is ever the same after that. Yeah. Of all my friends I've spoken to this hour, you are by far the smartest. 
Really? Wow. Yeah. How many yeah. have you talked to? One? Well, man, just one. Yeah, yeah, just you. Okay. But it's been great. It's been always great. And people um, learn a lot. I learn a lot. And I always go back and listen to the hour a second time because, like uh, Patrice said, I have to go back and listen and take notes, which is what I do. I've got well, notebooks that labeled Mark Muska. The, the, the Bible is great, isn't it? It's just so yeah, much fun it's to get best. into it. We got to commend our listeners, Bill, too. What great questions these people are thinking. Oh, they're definitely thinking, and they're they're bringing uh, bringing some great questions to the discussion. So I yep. want to let all the listeners know you did a great job today, and Mark, you did too. So thank you very much. Yep, great to be with you. All right, all right, that wraps up our Ask the Professor segment. And coming up this week, we're so excited about our One Child Initiative. If you are thinking about it, praying about it, it's going to all happen Thursday and Friday, but it doesn't have to happen Thursday or Friday. It can even happen right now tonight. If you want to go to MyFaithRadio.com and check out the one child, you can click on that and maybe sponsor a child, and you can do it today, and it would make a difference in a child's life. But that is the time we have for today. I've loved being with you, and I always look forward to that, and I thank all my guests. Uh, Ray Comfort uh, was wonderful if you missed any of that. And Rob Bluey and Dr. Mark Muska, thanks again, and have a great night, everybody. As you know that I pray for you and think about you and care about you, and I love you, and I look forward to being with you tomorrow. Have a great night, everyone. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.